I want to welcome you as well to fellowship. My name's Lloyd Shadrach. I'm one of the teaching pastors here along with Rob Sweet. I know most in the room would know that, but there's some in the room that don't each week because you're a guest, you're visiting, and I just want you to know that we are one church in two locations. So, you know, while we're here worshiping in two services, our Franklin congregation, there are three services going on at the Brentwood congregation. <clears throat> Rob and I are back and forth between both congregations as teaching pastors. When I say the word Pandora, what comes to your mind? Music. <laughs> Music. You know, you, you know we, we go to the streaming service pretty much, but you know, some would say, well, the, the Greek mythology, okay? This is where it comes from. Uh, the, the cliff note version uh, that some of us, you know, got to reach back to try and remember um, is that Pandora was the first woman uh, on earth. And she was uh, made by Zeus and given to humanity as a punishment. Now, let me refresh your minds on this story. And, and, it, and it tweaks a little bit. You, know, you can read it differently. It was written you know, some hundreds of years ago. But um, one of the gods, one of the lesser gods, had given fire to humanity. And this ticked Zeus off. That's the, the, he did not like that. He felt like fire was just for the gods. And so as punishment, uh, he uh, said, I'm gonna punish humanity by giving them this gift. And he gave humanity Pandora. Now, when he created her, she was irresistibly beautiful and uh, insatiably curious. And what many of us remember about this gift is he also gave her what? A box. He gave her a box. So, you know, here's Pandora given to humanity and uh, in time, her insatiable curiosity rises up and she cannot stop herself from opening the box. So she opens the box and out comes from that box every evil and darkness and misery known to humanity. Uh, she can't get the box shut quick enough. But when she does, she closes it back up and one thing remained in the box. In other words, she released all this evil and terribleness. She closes the box and there's one thing that was left in the box. Who knows what was left in the box? Yell it out if you know. Hope. So she closes the box and the only thing left in the box is hope. Now, you remember I said that Zeus was punishing humanity by this gift? And this is where we see it. It's the uh, poet uh, Hesiod. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He said, hope remained in the box because that was the will of Zeus. He wanted people to suffer without hope. In order that they would understand, they should not disobey their gods. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, when you and I open our Bible, what I'm suggesting today and would every day is that what comes out of this book is hope. From beginning to end, hope resides in God's word. Now, David Arms and I, a friend of mine, were thinking about hope many years ago. It's over 15 years ago. And we were just talking, he's a painter, and we're talking about what does hope look like, what does hope mean? We're just, you know, having coffee as 
two friends. And I remember saying to him at one point, I just said, you know, David, I think, you know, if I just boil it down to its simplest form, I want someone to tell me it's gonna be okay. That was the Igbot phrase that we use with my bracelet I wear. It's, it's gonna be okay. Because I just, it, it, you know, if you just kind of boil it down, that's what I long for, to know. Uh, if a kid hurts himself, if it's an adult bearing the weight of the world, and a, a, a person, you know, a, a man or a woman getting ready to lose their job and struggling financially, what do we want? We would love for someone to look us in the eye and, just, and, and say, it's gonna be okay. And the more David and I talked about this in this uh, conversation, the more we realized, well, you know, we can say it, but if I can't deliver, you know, if someone says that to you, but they can't deliver on the promise, then that's honestly, uh, it's, a, it's, it's almost cruelty, you know, because you say it's gonna be okay, and, and it turns out you can't deliver on that promise. And ultimately, as you could imagine, we would come to the place that the only being that can say it's gonna be okay and deliver is God, God alone. Now, it's not it's gonna be okay, you know, the cancer's gonna go away, you're gonna be healed, you're gonna uh, get the job back, you're gonna have enough money to live on. That's not, that's not the it's gonna be okay, it's an it's gonna be okay in the end. In finality, and we're gonna see this in a moment, in, in, the, in the final end and forever, it is gonna be okay because God has said it's going to be okay. I want you to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 46. We've read portions. We'll read the whole song this morning and study it in our study through the Psalms. I want to suggest that this is one place of many in which God says it's gonna be okay. Now, the Psalms divided into three stanzas. This is a songwriter at work. It's beautifully written. He breaks each stanza up with that word selah. Selah is an untranslatable Hebrew term that we really think means pause. It's like a rest, you know, in, in the musical score. And it's appropriate to think of it in this way. The selahs are those points where the, the, the songwriter is saying, stop right here and ponder what you have just read or sung, what you've just heard, pause and let it sink in. And we need these pauses as we go through this song. Uh, I'm gonna look at all three phrases. I'm gonna give you a stanzas. I'm gonna give you a phrase with each one. But we're gonna begin with the overarching theme of the psalm. And that's found in the very first line of the psalm. Uh, we'll read it. Everything afterwards, these three stanzas fit underneath this thematic statement. God's word to us today, Psalm 46, look at verse one. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength. Note, first of all, it's in the present tense. There has never been a time, there is not a time, and nor will there ever be a time that that statement is not true. Uh, God is our refuge. You know a refuge, you know this, it's a place of safety. Uh, it's a shelter. Uh, I, I got to play golf two Sundays ago, and uh, you know, the storm's kicking up in the afternoon, and I'm out there with the guys, and Storms coming in, lightning's hitting over there, you know, whatnot. And thankfully, you look around and there's these, what's on mini golf courses, there's these shelters, literally just shacks that are put up out there so you can go get under them. Of course, 
I'm playing with a bunch of guys that are kind of like, let's keep playing, so let's keep waving these metal sticks around while it's lightning right over there, you know? Anyways, these refuges are there. Now, I want you to note it says God is our refuge. And this is, we don't wanna miss the fact, it's not that God builds you a refuge. He builds you a little shack you can get in to get out of the rain. God himself is our refuge. How, how strong a refuge do you want? There can be none stronger than God himself. God is our strength, the idea here being God is this the strong enough to deliver on his promise, strong enough to be your refuge. It's, it's the idea that he is, it's his strength on our behalf. When we need strength, it's his strength on our behalf that is ours. It says he's a very present help in trouble. I've always understood that to mean he's right there. He's available when needed. And it does mean that. So I wanna say that. It, it does mean that he's there. We're gonna see that emphasized more a little bit later uh, in the song. And I think we see it emphasized a little more later because what he's saying here, I think there's a different thought, a nuanced thought that he's getting at when he says a very present help. Why do I say that? Well, always go by context. What's the context of this statement? And the statement itself can be translated, he is a help frequently tried and proved. And I think that does fit the context better as we begin to go through this psalm because other places he'll say he's present and he is. But the idea here being he's trustworthy. He's a proven commodity, if you will. The, the original audience would read this and they only have to reach you know, just a short way back in their history and, and the idea is that they would to go, oh my, he, look what he did to bring us out of bondage in Egypt. Read that story, remember that story. He parted the Red Sea, don't forget that story. He, the sea went over, you know, uh, Pharaoh and his chariots, don't forget that story. The walls fell down in Jericho, don't forget that story. The kings that were way stronger than us, God defeated, don't forget that story. Oh, God is a proven help in time of trouble. Now, I wanna pause a moment and address what's true for some of us in the room because I, 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 I sit with you and I look in the mirror because I know this comes for me as well at times. We hear these words, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble and the thought crosses our minds, well, that may be true for everyone else but it's just not true for me. Now, why does that cross our minds? Because our tendency can be to say, you know, if he was that and he is that and always will be that, then this would not have happened in my life. And that's real. That is real. There's things that happen. You go, well, he wasn't there then. And I want to I camp on this just for a moment because I think it really matters. What are we to do with the experiences of life that seem to contradict the promises of God? And I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible honestly and I face life honestly, these, that's what happens. I go, that doesn't seem true in my life. That doesn't seem true in the world. What do we do with those things? Now, oftentimes we think there's two options on this. We, we would take the option, well, 
I have got to hold God's word as being true. And, and yet this event, these things in my life that happened, I've got to diminish them. I've got to deny them or I've got to bury them in some way. Because if this is true, then this can't be true. And we do that. Or we may take the other option, quite frankly, and say, well, the God's, words, God's word says this, but this happened in my life. That can't be true. And so we, 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 we've got to just diminish the promise and the word of God. Now, I want to suggest that neither of those is the biblical response. And I want to argue for you, for us, and, and in terms from the scripture, that there's a third response, and that response is, and I think this is the biblical response, is to say, you know what, God is, it, it says so, God says it, and he says it over and over, God is our help and refuge, and a terrible thing has happened in my life, and I can't separate the two. This is biblical faith. This is the faith that recognizes God is good and bad things happen to good people and you cannot separate the two and I'll hold those two in tension. This is reality. And it's a biblical reality. Why would I argue for these two in tension? At the broadest level, let me say this. I don't think you can find in the Bible an individual who did not experience God is good and life is very difficult and bad things happen and God is good and life is difficult and bad. You can't find it in the life of a biblical character in the story of redemptive history. And the, 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 the par excellence example of that, quite frankly, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Where else are we gonna go? For we know that Jesus was wholly sinless trusted his father fully and he suffered cruelly more than any human being on the face of the planet would ever suffer because he was sinless. Do you see what I'm saying? So God, Jesus himself experienced that and we know Jesus trusted his father in faith. Does this make sense? This is, this is, this is where we go with these. We don't diminish one or diminish the other. We say, no, this is true of life on a fallen planet and may I say, and the psalm's gonna get there, when I say that, we gotta understand that while evil, death, injustice, inhumanity, cruelty have a say in life, and they do, they don't get the final say. They don't get the eternal say because Jesus rose from the dead. That's, it's gonna be okay, you see. Okay, Let's go on to the second, or the, the stanzas. That, that we've we've kind of unpacked this overarching thing. Let's hit the three stanzas themselves. Look at verses two to three. Okay, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, verse one. Let's go on. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling selah. I'm gonna give you a phrase with each of these stanzas. Here's the first phrase. God is our refuge and strength. And here's the statement I'm gonna change for each one. When the world is falling apart. God is our refuge and strength when the world is falling apart. Uh, this is a picture, obviously, that he's describing, 
but he is describing nothing less, okay, truly nothing less than the physical world falling apart. That's what he's describing. For the Hebrew in the original audience here, when they looked around the world, nature, the planet, when they thought of what's the most stable, immovable, rock solid thing here, they looked at the mountains. Read all the Psalms. It's the mountains. It's the same thing you and I feel when we stand in front of the mountains. Don't you? That is massively immovable. That's going to stay forever. You know, that's what they looked at. When they looked at the sea, We've talked about this before. It's always a metaphor for what's chaotic and dark and mysterious and harmful. And so what he describes is the, st- the one thing that's stable is getting swallowed by the one thing that's unstable. This is nothing less than the reversal of creation. He's describing de-creation. In Genesis, it begins with chaos and God brings order and creation, mountains rise above the waters. In this Psalm, he's describing that in reverse. And what he's saying is, though the worst thing in life that we could conceivably see, and that is this whole planet dissolves, falls apart, the mountains fall into the sea. God is a refuge and strength, a very present and proven hope, even in that kind of trouble. I don't know what you're going through in life right now, but I'd suggest all of us, none of us, none of us can go through a day without our hope being challenged by some difficulty and hardship in life, you simply can't do it. In our fallenness, there, y'all, there's always some part of the mountain crumbling in your world and mine. It's never, you know, there's always something going on. And even if the world's falling apart and whatever's going on in your world, the psalmist is trying to help us see. I know it doesn't feel like it, but God's immovable. He's immovable, unshakable, even as your life is shaking apart. He goes on, let's pick up the next stanza because he'll build on it, verses four to seven. And he sings, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. I want you to stop there and notice the contrast We have gone from mountains falling into the sea. You can't get any bigger movement to she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That will be repeated, that refrain in verse 7 and verse 11. The phrase I would put on this stand is this, God is our refuge and strength because he is with us. Because he is with us. Picture the 
all the commercials running right now or in the past in, in your mind's eye that had to do with the heat of summer, whether it's an athlete working out or you know, someone's just sweating like crazy and they're dehydrated, they need something to drink and it's a cold beer or it's a drink or it's a soda or it's a sparkling water, they open it up. You feel that, you know? For the Hebrew, the mention of water would be like, it would just be, and so they go from this chaotic water to this life-giving stream. In that arid environment where water was everything, you know, you had to be near it, you had to have, you didn't go anywhere, you don't live apart from it. They had a word for this kind of water. They had uh, water that, water that moved, okay? They didn't say, hey, that's moving water. You know what they called it. They literally called it living water as opposed to a well or a cistern. This was living water. We know geographically, you know, that Jerusalem, which is the city this is describing literally, uh, sits on a rock and there's no river in sight. There's the stream of Siloam, but there's no river. And so we, we look at this and we know geographically that, ain't, that's not, that doesn't happen. What, what's he saying? Well, this is, it's, a, it's a picture of this stream of life flowing out of Jerusalem. We have to ask the question, what in the world is that? What's the river? Well, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Jeremiah 2.13 says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, it's God speaking, the fountain of living waters. You know Jesus will say these words in John. On the last day of the feast, the great day, John 7, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink, and drink me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. Water, the stream that is flowing out and making glad the city of God, Jerusalem, is nothing less than God. This is an image of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God in his fullness, present in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of God where God said, this is where I'm gonna put my name. The city wherein he put his temple. This is where the people of God meet with their God, the city of God, Jerusalem. God is present in Jerusalem and therefore, though the mountains fall into the sea, Jerusalem's unmovable. God's presence is the presence of hope. God's presence is the presence of his hope. Now, I wanna, make a, I wanna make a fine line distinction here. We have a doctrinal belief and understanding from the Bible that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, always present. Everybody with me? So this, this is not saying since God is omnipresent, we have hope. It's saying something different. Omnipresence, by the way, if you, if you even try and, if you begin to get your mind around it, your mind will hurt, your brain will explode. God's omnipresence is not, you know, don't picture like God is so big, he can cover the whole world and have it all wrapped up. That's not God's omnipresence. God's omnipresence is that God himself, all that he is, is present in every place 
at every moment. That makes my head hurt. You know, that he's fully present everywhere at every moment. That's omnipresence. But what is it talking about here that God's present, because God is present, but what does it mean that he's present and we have hope? Don't miss the clue the psalmist gives us when he says he's the God of Jacob. Oh, oh, he's the God with whom we're in relationship with because God made a covenant with Abraham covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're a people with whom God has covenanted to be in presence with. Does this make sense? This is relational presence. And when you are relationally connected to God, relationally present, mm, there's this kind of hope that is ours. Genuine biblical hope rests upon the truth that God is with us. Then the third stanza, let's catch it and then we'll apply it. Verses eight through 11. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Verse 10 is the verse we generally remember from this psalm. It's the only time God speaks. God speaks and says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then the, the, the same refrain from verse seven, the Lord of hosts. This is the Lord and his angels. The Lord who leads his armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We need again to put ourselves in the context of the original audience, okay? And we'll do it like this. Start where we are. You know, you can't read the newspaper today. You can't hear a podcast or anything here in the news. And look, I look at the news every morning and headlines and stuff. And you know what? There's just, there's trouble everywhere. And, and you know, with Iran's enriching, you know, uranium to have a bomb. We have rogue powers that have bombs. We have North Korea. We have China, Russia, the superpowers. I mean, we just got, it's like devastation everywhere, okay? But... I don't think that you and I as Americans in the United States go to bed at night worried or wake up in the morning and think, man, we could be, in, we could be taken over today. I mean, they, we could, someone could invade the United States and conquer us and put us in, we don't, I don't think we think that. I do believe that for the Jews in this day, they didn't go through a day when it wasn't on the back of their mind. We could be conquered today. <laughs> I mean, they could be working in the field, planting, wondering, I wonder if I'm gonna eat the crop this year. I mean, literally, this is how they live. They do not live a day without the threat of enemies coming in and putting them in bondage and destroying them. Isn't it interesting that Israel today 
2,000 plus years later, you all, that's palpable in Israel. Today could be the day. It's all gone. Well, in this day, they think that. So when the psalmist says, come, you know, he's talking about the stability of God, the security of God, the hope of God. And he says, come, see the works of God. You know, my thought would have been he's gonna tell something really bright and cheery, you know? But all of a sudden he goes to this darkness and devastation and he's talking about wars and he, he brings wars to end. And you know what? He takes the weapons of war and he destroys them so that, so that the weapons of war can't be used against you. Do you understand for them? That was like, yeah, you know, that, that, would, that was like hope for them. Like, oh, you're saying we're gonna be secure. Our enemies aren't gonna conquer us. <sighs> we don't feel it as deeply as they did, but he could not have said anything more hope-giving than to know our enemies will be defeated. And in this context, he says, God says, be still and know that I am God I will be exalted among the nations, among the powers of the world, and I will be exalted in the earth, in this earth that could crumble to nothing, I will be exalted. The meaning of be still, it's better captured in the New American Standard, uh, and, and Dana mentioned it even as he led us to pray, that the, the New American Standard says, cease striving. And it's better understood that way. Why? Because of the context. Look at what's, what's happening in this context. It's striving, it's war, it's weapons, it's chariots, it's spears. And he says, drop the weapons. I'm God. I will be exalted. Not because you defeat your enemies. Not because you fight well. Not because of your fast chariots. Now, I found it interesting when I look at this to pose the question, is he talking is God talking to Israel's enemies or is he talking to Israel when he says this? What do you think? Both, certainly both. Certainly to Israel's enemies, it's, uh, you know, you can see striving because you will be destroyed, certainly that, but for the believer, for the, for the one in co covenant relationship with God, he's saying, you can put down your own weapons, whatever you've got in your hands that you're using to try and secure your border, let's put it in our context, secure your future, firm up life so you know life's gonna be okay, put it down, drop it. Because I'm God and I will be exalted among the powers of the world and on this earth and in your life because you're in relationship with me. Now, we cannot be dogmatic on this, but many believe, and I think there's evidence to, to hint at, there's a very specific historical event uh, which prompted the psalm, which most of these psalms are written because something happens, and then you, you, know, you write a song about it. And the historical event that we think that this psalm was written in response to happens in 2 Kings 18 and 19. Don't turn there, I'm gonna just describe it to you. Israel's the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom. And um, the king of Judah is a king named Hezekiah. And uh, Hezekiah is ruling when Sennacherib, uh, great king of the Assyrians, comes to take Jerusalem. And I'm kidding you not, you all, when I say this. You know, they lived in a day 
you know, it, it could be you wake up one day and you don't even know it, but the king next door decided he wants your town and they just come take it. They kill you. This, that, this was life. And so Sennacherib has come against Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. Now it says along the way, he took this city, took this city, took this city, took this. So he's just taking cities along the way. And then he gets to Jerusalem, got Jerusalem surrounded. He's gonna lay siege to Jerusalem. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of troops. And Sennacherib's officers, they, they shout to the people in Jerusalem, you know, because it's, you know, it's not huge. They can shout up at the wall at the people. And I want you to listen to these words. This is from 2 Kings 18. And it says, and the, Rab, the Rabshakeh said to them, said to the Jews, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, so the whole town could understand it. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Can you imagine the weight that they went to bed with that night after listening to that, peering over the wall and seeing nothing but a sea of soldiers? Hezekiah prayed. And here's what happens the next morning. This is 2 Kings 19. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Now I want you to, let's say, let's stop for a minute, okay. They went to bed terrified. They're gonna, they're gonna lay siege to us. We're gonna die. While they were sleeping, God destroys the Assyrians. You want a picture of cease striving? How about sawing logs and God delivers you? That's the picture. That's the story. God was their refuge and their strength. Now, one other thing to think about on this. You remember they said, the, the, the king's men from Assyria said this, do you think mere words are strategy and power for war? Now, what he's saying is, do you think that Hezekiah's words trust in God are more powerful than the several hundred thousand of us outside the wall? That's what he said. 
And what does the story show us? Uh, yes. God's promises are greater than God's enemies. God's words to us are way more powerful than soldiers and weapons of war.